Hi, this is Oren. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at orenjsofer. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to support Oren's work, you can donate at orenjsofer.com forward slash support. You know, as we look back over the course of a retreat, sometimes we can um, we can wonder what's what's the point, and uh, did I get anything out of this? Is this going to help me at all? And uh, last night I spoke a little bit about. One, some ways of understanding the goal of this practice in terms of insight and freedom. And tonight, uh, I would want to offer a different perspective on that. One of the ways that we can understand what we're doing in this practice is creating the conditions for our heart to open and to learn how to love. In particular, learning how to love ourselves. One of the ways that um, I like to think about this is uh, learning to be a good friend to ourselves. And so last night I spoke about this uh, one piece of advice that one of my teachers gave me. Mindfulness is the only way to be free. And um, another one of the pieces of advice that he gave us was uh, learn to be your own best friend. And I, I think that there's a lot to that. and that we can really understand this practice as, as learning the art of being a good friend and really learning to discover what that means. There's another, uh, another saying from a Korean teacher who says, uh, I make my mind my friend. I make my mind my friend. So think about how many battles you've had <laughs> with your own mind over the last few days or how many times it's uh, turned on you. You know, as we slow down and look inside, it's not always what we find, that we are such a good friend to ourselves. A very famous uh, saying from the Buddha uh, who said, There is no one that can do you more harm, neither an enemy, a hater, or a thief, than your own untrained mind. And there is no one who can do you more good, neither a mother, a father, or a lover, than your own well-trained mind. We're our own constant companion, for better or for worse. 
so how's the company? <laughs> you know? So this is what we're learning. We're learning how to make peace with ourself. And as Thich Nhat Hanh says, if you don't begin your peace work here, where will you go to begin it? So this relationship of friendship is not necessarily our default. It's not necessarily what we find. In fact, for many of us, we find the opposite. I know for myself that was, uh, that was certainly the case. Was I telling you guys about the f one of those retreats I sat where they were talking about self-judgment and I was saying, yeah, I was, was here, right? I was saying, <laughs> I don't remember who I say what to. I was saying, you know, and oh God, that sounds awful. I'm so glad I don't have that. And I just hadn't seen it, right? So fast forward a couple years, <laughs> I'm on retreat, long retreat. And um, I'm doing walking meditation in the grass out front. And um, the bell rings to call everyone back in for sitting. And uh, I was really in a groove with the walking, walking very slowly, mindfully, diligently, really, really interested in the mind and the sensations and looking very closely at what was happening. And so I kind of paused considered turning to go inside and said, no, just keep walking. So I kept walking. And what was, what was so curious was that even though I was walking very slowly and being really mindful, I could really feel the movements and the steps, something didn't feel right. There was like this, this friction inside or like, uh, you know, There was something that felt off, but I couldn't, I couldn't tell what it was. So I just kept looking and listening closely. And then all of a sudden, right at the end of one step, as the foot was coming down, I heard this little voice inside, almost a whisper, barely perceptible, saying, Not quite good enough. Not quite good enough. Just a little bit. And you could do a little bit better, a little bit harder, Orin. Come on, a little bit harder. And something inside just, just cracked open. In that moment, I felt how for years there had been this voice pushing, driving, judging, always kind of not quite good enough, keep trying harder, could do better, come on, get it together. And just the tears of being uh, driven and and oppressed by this this self-judgment. So whether it's self-judgment or striving, feeling like you know we have to push really hard or work really hard or comparing ourselves to others thinking that, you know, they're all so much better than I am and I'm a failure at this and I can't do it. We can be really hard on ourselves. Sometimes the things that we say to ourselves, we would never say to someone else inside. So we're slowly learning to transform that relationship. Every time we let go and begin again, Every time we're able to bring a little bit of kindness, a little bit of acceptance or compassion to what's happening, we're learning to be a good friend, learning to be a better friend to ourselves.
And what's it like to be a good friend? What's it like to have a good friend? You know? A good friend stands by you when things get hard. Right? They don't cut out just because you're having a rough time. They don't look down on you when you're struggling. They, they're willing to do things that are difficult for us. They're willing to bear with hardship for our sake. How does, a, how does a friend treat us? They treat us with respect and patience. They're accepting. You know, they don't judge. They're compassionate. They give us time and space. They're patient. So can we learn to start to bring those qualities to ourselves, just moment by moment, whatever's happening? Learning to be a true friend, to be a good friend to oneself, also means learning to be an ally. Learning to be in solidarity with ourself so that we can be an ally to others, learning how to be in solidarity with others. To have solidarity with someone who's suffering, to have solidarity with someone who's uh, being harmed or oppressed by others, we have to understand that experience. To be an ally, we first need to see the pain of another. We have to be willing to acknowledge their pain, to open to it. And so it is with ourself, to be an ally to our own person, to be in solidarity with ourself. We have to be willing to look at the pain, to actually open to it, to acknowledge it. And this means being willing to listen. Right? To have the humility to try to understand what's needed, rather than to think, I know best, let me fix this, I can take care of this. That's not being a friend. That's not being a real ally. To be an ally means that, that we're present and available, willing to listen, willing to respond with what's needed. And when we do that, when we open our heart to the pain of ourself or another, when we're willing to listen, it means we take on the struggle as our own. That there, there, There's a commitment that grows inside that says, enough, enough. Let's put an end to this. Let's put an end to this suffering. Being an ally means that we stand up even when we feel scared, even when we're not sure, to know this isn't right. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not sure what quite to say, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to risk something. I'm going to step forward. Can we do that for ourselves? You know, when the mind starts tormenting and torturing us, 
Can we stand up? Can we stand up to that voice inside, even if we're scared of it? Can we turn to face the demon and look it in the eyes and say, enough, enough? It means being willing to be uncomfortable. You know, having a friend isn't easy. It takes time. It takes work. You have arguments. You have to make a little bit of a sacrifice every now and then to stay in touch. But when we put in that work, when we put in that effort, when we take that time, we form a bond, we form a connection. The word ally, it contains that word to alloy, to join. Just like the word kindness contains the word kin, kinship. There's a relationship there. So we're developing that relationship with our own heart, with ourself, developing a bond, a stronger bond. So it's like, you know that you've got your back. I can't tell you how many conversations I've had with many of you that feeling that like things are hard because there's no one there no one's got my back you know so we develop that so that you have a strong back again going back to that image of the roots of a tree so that you can feel that strength in yourself you can rely on yourself because you've developed the you've developed the bond you've developed the relationship you have a true friend in your own mind that's strong, that's kind, that's patient, that's willing to endure the difficulties, that's willing to face the challenges. We form an alliance with ourselves. And that doesn't mean that we, uh, that we think that we're always right, like I, I, I'm on my side. This is a true alliance. This is for our own benefit, for our own welfare. They, um, some social scientists did some, some research on um, the, uh, some of the protests in the early civil rights movements in the 1960s, the Freedom Riders, and... Um, specifically on some of the white folks from the north who went down south uh, to march. And they were interested in understanding why. Like, what was there any kind of common denominator? Right, Because there were plenty of people in the north who maybe supported the idea of civil rights, but didn't put their body on the line, didn't actually go down and walk and subject themselves to the fire hoses or the dogs or the potential for police brutality or violence at the hands of uh, locals. It was very interesting what they found. They found that it wasn't, um, it wasn't the strength of somebody's beliefs or their values or their conviction. You know what it was? The people who went were the ones who had friends. 
They were the ones who had friends who were going or who were down there. They had a personal connection. Because that's what you do for a friend, is you show up. When they're in danger, you show up because they're your friend. And that's what we're practicing here. We're practicing showing up again and again and again. Learning how to face whatever comes, however devastating it, it, it may appear as the specter in the mind. Can we show up for ourselves? And again, the more we do that for ourselves, the more we can do it for others. And this process takes time. Georgia O'Keeffe, who a uh, wonderful painter, painted many flowers, as I'm sure you know. One of my favorite quotes comes from her. She said, still in a way, nobody sees a flower, really. It's so small. And to see takes time like to have a friend takes time. It takes time to develop this relationship. You know, you don't get an old friend overnight. This is from Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who wrote The Little Prince. This is from another one of his books called Wind, Sand, and Stars. He said, old friends cannot be created out of hand. Nothing can match the treasure of common memories, of trials endured together, of quarrels and reconciliations and generous emotions. It is idle to have planted an acorn in the morning to expect that afternoon to sit in the shade of an oak. So we're watering that seed. We're developing that bond. We're building that relationship so that when we close our eyes and sit down, it's like we're in the company of an old friend. And that feels so good to see an old friend, to have the chance to spend time together. So to do this means we have to find, we have to find that thread of kindness. We have to find that that orientation in the heart of, of warmth, of love, to offer it to ourselves. And so we have to, we have to pick, that, pick that thread up. We have to pick up that note. It's like when you're singing or playing a song you have to find the right key. Sometimes you need a tuning fork. You need, you need that, um, that initial reference point to find the home note. And then, and then the song, the melody, sort of forms around that. So in developing this relationship of friendship, we have to find that home note of kindness inside. And so really asking oneself, where have I known this quality of friendliness, of warmth, of care. 
And if you look, I think you will find that we have each been on the receiving end of so much kindness in our life, so much generosity, even from people we don't know. I just look at the sisters here, how loving and kind and generous they've been, or all the work Carol's been doing in the kitchen, preparing three and four different dishes to meet everybody's different dietary needs. You don't have to look very far. Somebody who holds the door for you. Hey, I think you left this. What would this life be like if there wasn't any kindness? I don't think we'd make it. I don't think any of us would be here. It'd be too, it'd be too dark. So, but we need to notice it. We need to really tune into it and then amplify it, strengthen it. So for me, um, one of the places that that I go back to is um, my dad's mom, my grandma. My dad was born in um, what was then British Palestine in the uh, early 40s. And uh, his parents had been Zionists. They moved to Palestine from Poland and Belarus looking for a better life. They met over there. And uh, they were very poor. He grew up in a shack, one room, dirt floor, with his parents and two brothers. And... um, his mother, Itka, I called her Safta, which means grandma in Hebrew. Um, she was a very brilliant woman, very intelligent, but she, she didn't have any education past elementary school. So uh, she, she was never able to really realize her potential because of the time that she lived in and the patriarchal society that uh, she was surrounded by. But she still, um, you know, she, she took care of the family. My dad says that she's she's the reason that they actually survived. She managed the money. She raised goats and chickens and rabbits for food and uh, grew a garden. And she was uh, she was a very short, stocky woman, and she had very um, small hands, kind of stubby fingers, and they were kind of chubby. And uh, but she you know she worked with her hands, so they're very strong. And uh, by the time I knew her, they were very wrinkled, but they were still soft, kind of this plump, soft, wrinkled hands. And uh, she didn't speak any English, and I didn't speak any Hebrew. But we would spend time together. We would play cards. I would teach her little card games, like go, like uh, war or go fish or things like this. And uh, And then sometimes we would just hold hands just hold hands and touch. There was so much love in her eyes. I can still see her eyes in my face, in my in my mind, and feel her hands. And so I remember that, and I remember her kindness, and I, and I offer that to myself. 
But where have you felt that? Where have you felt that love, that acceptance? It might not be with a human being. It might be with an animal or a pet. But finding that and then taking it in, really making it your own. Because of course our ability to be a friend to ourselves. It depends on our friendship with others. That's how we learn it. We learn kindness by receiving kindness. We learn love by receiving love. And so the two, they support each other. There's a reciprocal relationship. The more we're able to be a friend to ourselves, the more we can be a friend to others. And at the same time, the more others the more we have the examples of friendship and kindness in our life, the more that, that seeps in, we learn to be a friend to ourselves. A lot of our pain and suffering and wounds come from relationship. From whether it's our family or a love relationship but a lot of a lot of the wounds we carry were created with a, with other human beings and so as powerful as this practice is sometimes those need to be healed in relationship too through friendship through having a a different experience than the wound i had a moment like that um Many years ago, when I was in my 20s, I was studying in Japan and uh, I was doing a sashin at a Zen temple. And um, I had a certain role on the retreat. I was kind of taking care of the altar. And so um, we had these big um, white candles that were, in my memory, they were like this, this wide, you know few inches across, very kind of massive candles. And uh, we would sit at night, very rigorous schedules, just sit until 10 p.m., wake up at 3.30. No walking meditation. 50-minute periods, five minutes of walking. He, he knows. <laughs> He's done Zen Seshin. Very, very intensive practice. So at night, you know, 10 o'clock, you're exhausted. <laughs> like, just want to pull out your uh, your futon. You sleep in the meditation hall, also. You don't have a room. You sleep where you sit. You've got a little a little futon that you pull out, and then you sleep, and then you roll it up and you sit. <laughs> uh, so, and this little little chalk placard with your name on it next to your next to your seat. So, um, ten o'clock at night. You know, I'm tired. My body hurts. I just want to go to bed. And um, the way the, uh, the the temple priest had taught me to uh, blow out the candles in the Zen tradition, you're not supposed to use your uh, your breath to blow out the candle. You suppose you cup your hand like this, and then you you make this little gesture with your wrist to create kind of a puff of air, and that blows out the candle. And you know, for a little candle like this, it works great. But <laughs> 
when you've got a big candle with a flame that's been burning for you know a couple hours at night of sitting, it's kind of hard to blow the candle out. So I'm sitting there and you know it's late. I want to go to bed. You know, so first night okay, second night okay. Somewhere in the middle of the retreat, maybe the third night or the fourth night, I'm oh god, you know, I'm kind of sleep deprived at this point, trying to blow out the candle, and my hand hits the candle, and um, on the altar there is this um this beautiful sandalwood uh carving of manjushri the bodhisattva of wisdom riding on this lion there's this sandalwood statue and this you know bodhisattva with a sword and so my hand hits the candle and this big pool of wax splatters on manjushri on the floor on the mats oh no shit <laughs> so you know the candle's out <laughs> there's wax everywhere so I go and I walk in the temple to go find the, the priest whose name was uh, Hojo-san which is a kind of a, just an honorific title this is short Japanese man who s spoke broken English just enough to kind of give us instructions so uh, I, I found him. He was in the hallway, and I kind of go up to him with my hands together and kind of bowing. Everything's, when you're an American in Japan, you feel like you're huge. Everything is very kind of small and neat. And so I kind of go up to him, and, you know, here I have this American spilled wax all over the altar. <laughs> so I go up to him, and he says, Hojo-san, um, I was trying to blow out the candle and I I hit the candle and the wax went everywhere I'm so sorry the wax kind of went all over the place and without batting an eye he just looked at me smiled and nodded and said oh that's okay we all make mistakes sometimes come it's very easy to clean up I'll show you how It was such a teaching to be met with that kind of acceptance and kindness. So sometimes we need to learn how to be a good friend from others. Having others show us that acceptance, that willingness to roll with it when it gets hard or when we mess up. There's another another saying that I really like. I don't know where this one is from, but it's uh, a friend is someone who knows your song and can sing it back to you when you've forgotten. So we're learning our own song. We're learning to find that melody of our own heart inside so that when we lose ourselves, when we forget our goodness, can remind ourselves. And if we can't, can we reach out to someone else? Do we have do we have that reflection from another who can show it, who can who can sing it back to us, who can show it to us?
in uh, in South Africa, there's um, tradition in in the Zulu tribe when you greet somebody, uh, the the word you say is sa- is sawubona, which uh, which means I see you. So I learned this from the same same teacher Josen mentioned the other night, who has a center in South Africa, and the response the response is yabos sawubona which means we see you too this is the this is the way of greeting one another so there's this deep mutual recognition we see each other and there's a there's an implicit agreement there that there's a there's an invitation to participate in each other's life with this gesture of sawubona of seeing one another and so again that's at the heart of this practice. Whatever arises, whatever experience we meet, I see you. Offering that gesture of, of meeting life with respect, with mutuality, with the willingness to participate. It's not easy, though. This uh, this journey of learning to be a good friend to oneself, learning to meet ourselves and our experience with this gesture of seeing. I see you. Martin Buber said, "All real life is meeting, really meeting experience on its own terms. We can feel so separate." so isolated. This is from Mother Teresa. There's much suffering in the world, very much. There's material suffering, suffering from hunger, suffering from homelessness, from all kinds of disease. But I still think that the greatest suffering is being lonely, feeling unloved, just having no one. I have come more and more to realize that it is being unwanted that is the worst disease that any human being can ever experience. One uh, one monastic teacher I know told me a story about uh, a couple in England that he knows who uh, adopted a young young baby uh, infant, and uh, this baby, this uh, young girl, had been abandoned. You know, two weeks old or something, just left outside. Uh, and it was it was it was a long time before anyone found found her, and uh, she was just just in, kind of in shock. You know that that age, human, 
human being needs contact, needs to be held, needs needs a, another presence there. And uh, she had been sort of out in the cold and separated from any you know, caring human being for so long, she just kind of went into this sort of almost autistic state, just totally cut off. When they got her, she was, you know, there was no contact, no sign of any contact with the outside. She was just in her own kind of state. So they decided uh, that they would hold her 24 hours a day, always strapped to one of their bodies, just making contact. And uh, this went on for over a year, just holding this little creature all day, all night, every day, never leaving her alone for a minute, always having that physical contact and warmth. And finally, after more than a year, she looked up. There's some sense that there's someone there. It took a whole year of just holding her, just reassuring her, for her to start to come out of this frozen state. She she never fully recovered. She had problems, you know, her whole life as she grew. But I think in many ways there there are parts of our heart that are that are frozen, that have been rejected or shoved aside or made to feel inadequate or um, shamed that we need to hold that we need to be so patient, so tender, so present, consistently present with, until something inside starts to melt, starts to recognize, oh, you're there. I can relax, I can come out. The feeling of separation, the feeling of isolation and alienation, it's one of the one of the most pervasive illnesses of modern society. You know, loneliness is not the experience of being alone. It's the experience of not feeling connected, of being around others and not feeling connection. You can be in a city of millions of people and feel utterly alone. You can have thousands of friends on Facebook or, you know, hundreds of likes on your post and feel so alone because there's no real connection it's all it's all just a just an image just a screen but if we look if we start to look we see that that's an illusion we're not alone i mean you've all been in silence this week but have you been alone in your mind have the people people from home or work followed you here? <laughs> you know, we carry the world inside of us. Everyone you've ever known is here. 
And if we just look, we just start to look a little bit more closely at our life, we can see the interconnection. This is from Albert Einstein. A human being is part of the whole called universe. Sorry, a human being is part of the whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. He or she experiences themselves, their thoughts and feelings, as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. So just look at just look at the food we eat or the clothes we wear all of the interconnections in our economy all of the many people that have worked to produce the things that we use every day that feed us and clothe us think about the air that we breathe every breath has come from a tree every drop of water we drink has been a cloud or a river or a raindrop. Every atom in our body comes from the stars. The sense of separation is, as Einstein said, it's an optical delusion of consciousness. It's not real. We are deeply connected, irrevocably connected, as Dr. King said, tied together in a single garment of destiny, the interrelated structure of reality. It's inescapable, our connection, but we don't see it, we don't experience it. We've been talking about trees on this retreat, some that image of the giant sequoia and developing your own presence like a solid, steady tree. In recent years, they've... Um, They've discovered some amazing things about trees. Some of you probably are aware of this. That trees share resources. The trees in a forest are connected underneath the ground through the network of their roots and the mycelia that connect them. In a forest, there'll be certain trees that are called hub trees. The older tree, the bigger older, more mature trees, the, the ones that are taller and older, they have access to more sunlight, they produce more sugar than they need, so they share nutrients with the younger trees. They send it down through the roots to the trees that need it. That's being a good friend. Yeah? There's uh, partnerships even across species So the, uh, the deciduous uh, birch trees and the evergreen Douglas firs will trade in the spring and the fall. So in the, in the fall, the fir trees will share sugar with the, with the birch trees that don't have any leaves. And in the, in the summer, the birches return the favor to the, to the fir trees because there's, there's more shade, so the fir trees have less sunlight. Being a friend means that we share. And it means that we're connected. We feel those connections. Being an ally means that we're willing to share our resources with those who have less. 
that we're willing to redistribute that privilege, just like that mother tree that has more sugar and sunlight. It sees, oh, these other trees don't have enough. I don't need all of this. Let me give to others so that they're stronger. And so the, far, the whole forest grows stronger that way. The coastal redwoods near where I live, uh, these 300 feet foot tall trees, over a thousand years old, their roots are very shallow, less than six feet deep. They don't have a tap root. Do you know how they stand up? They reach out to each other and they join roots. They form a network. It's through the network of their roots that they find their strength and stand. The more we do this practice, the more we learn to be a good friend to ourselves. We have more to share. We have more to give. We can reach out and offer support and find support from others. We'll be going home tomorrow, and one of the main questions that comes up is, how do I keep this going? If you look at the early texts, one of the things that the Buddha emphasizes again and again and again is who you spend time with. Who are your friends? Who are your people? Who is your community? That's what's going to help us keep this going, especially in this society, especially in this day and age. There's so much pressure to check out, to disconnect, to isolate. The Buddha said, 2,600 years ago, he said, this practice goes against the stream. It goes against the current of society, and that couldn't be more true today. It goes against the forces of accumulation, greed, self-centeredness, egotism. Believing that our value has to do with how we look or what we can produce or how much we have. So we're learning to be a good friend, learning to make our mind our own friend. So that whatever comes, whatever, whatever life presents, we have something to rely on. We have a base, we have roots. And part of that, part of that process means reaching out. Part of that process means finding your friends around you, and then learning together how to be a good friend. It's a new documentary that's out um, about Fred Rogers. Has anyone seen it? Yeah, it's so beautiful. Fred Rogers, the, the man who's uh, the Mr. Rogers show. So... Um, this is a quote from Fred Rogers. He says, Deep within us, 
No matter who we are, there lives a feeling of wanting to be lovable, of wanting to be the kind of person that others like to be with. The greatest thing we can do is to let people know that they are loved and capable of loving. And I think that's what we're doing in this practice. We're learning, we're learning that for ourselves. The more we know how to do that for ourselves, the more we can offer it to others. To see that place in everyone that's capable of loving and being loved. So may you learn to be your own best friend and share that friendship with others. Let's just sit together for a moment. Thank you so much for your kind attention. So we have uh, a little less than half an hour for some walking. Enjoy your walking, and we'll meet back here at 9 for the last sitting of the day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.